Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zon. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father, we give you thanks for your word that is a light to our feet, guiding us into all goodness and truth. I pray that your word would guide us this morning to truth, to goodness, to beauty. And our hearts would be strengthened and our bond grown strong as well. We pray this and trust that you will meet with us by the power of your spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, it was in the year 1163 that the construction of the great cathedral, the Notre Dame, uh, began. But it wasn't fully finished until 1345, which if, I don't know what your head math is like, if it's anything like mine, I had to use a calculator to figure this out. That's 182 years it took from the time it started to the time it was completed. You know, the, and during that time, there's four different architects, so they called master builders, that oversaw this process. The, the first master builder, we don't even know who he was. Uh, his name is, is unknown. Uh, and then the three that followed first was Jean de Chalise. I really shouldn't try to pronounce his names, but I'm going to try. So there you go. There's your entertainment for this morning, me speaking French. He, uh, the first one, Jean oversaw just the construction of the north transept. So just one little part of this cathedral was his kind of thing that he oversaw in his time. And then after him was Pierre de Montreux. Uh, <laughs> He was responsible for just these large round pillars um, that supported these fallout ribs. And he was also responsible for some of the, the Gothic construction. If you ever looked at a picture of the Notre Dame, some of the Gothic and the, the flying buttresses, super fun. He was responsible for that. You know, one of the interesting things is when it happens over so, so long a period that this was built, each, each new architect actually added some different things that maybe weren't there in the original design, so they kind of have their different character, adding their character to the, to the space. And then finally, there was Pierre de Chely's 
or something. He, um, he was the, actually the nephew to, the, to the, the second of the architects, Jean, and uh, he worked 18 years on building a choir loft and some of the decor in the building. And you know, the crazy thing is none of these four men actually got to see it completed. Uh, and yet, they committed their lives to this project, to seeing this great cathedral um, be built, uh, which begs the question, why, right? Like, why would they commit their lives to building something that they would never be able to enjoy or see finished themselves? I mean, could you imagine yourself designing something and building something that you didn't actually get to enjoy uh, or building a house uh, I mean, if you're building your own house, if, if it took longer than a year to be completed, you'd probably get a little antsy and wonder, when's this thing going to be done? Uh, so why did they do this? Why were these guys willing to commit their lives to something that they would not be able to actually enjoy, that even their children wouldn't be able to enjoy? I think at least one reason is this, that these men understood the importance of what they were building, right? They understood the importance of of legacy, they believed that what they were building was so important that it didn't actually matter if they got to enjoy it, um, if they got to see a finished product, or even if their kids got to see it, because they knew they were building something for generations to come after them. Uh, and they, they had their, their grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren, their great-great-great-grandchildren, and, and so on in mind. Because ultimately, they were building this for the generations to come. Which makes me wonder, how often do, do I, how often do you, do we all think about our great, great, great grandchildren? How often do you think about how your different choices that you make today and every aspect of life will impact the generations to come? I think if we thought more about that, it would change drastically how we lived our lives. I think one of our problems is, uh, can be summed up by what one person calls the kind of get everything done today error. Right? We're so immediate focused in everything that we do. We're the instant uh, generation and even the problems we're trying to solve in this world, if we can't uh, fix it immediately, we give up on the project. We, we end up being very short-sighted. Uh, but the deepest work in our lives the deepest work that you're called into being a part of is more like building a cathedral than it is like a drive through And we've all been given our little small corner, our little transept to work on uh, in our time, which is kind of this small thing in the grand scheme of things, but it's, in, it's important and it plays its part in seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And you know, where, where even a grand building takes about 200 years to build, God's kingdom takes thousands of years to come on earth as it is in heaven. And as an instant gratification kind of people, I think the, the slowness, the, the generationalness of this coming kingdom can actually discourage us. But I think in Psalm 78, we're given this beautiful picture to see the deep work that we've been given, how it's bigger than us, that you and I can't solve today's, all the world's problems, um, but we're not called to. We're called to the work that we're called to, and then we're to pass it on to our children, each generation having their part to play. Uh, the work before us is not ours to finish, but we pass it to them so they can play their part, and they can pass it to their children, and so on. And Psalm 78 gives us this profound challenge to pass our faith on to our children. 
from one generation to the next, that the legacy of the kingdom might be preserved and even expanded with the generations to come. And that's, you know, this is how the gospels come to flourish around the world. As people training their children up and sending them out and them having children and training their children up and so forth. Until now, there are Christians all over the planet. And so as we come to this third of a four-week series thinking about the topic of the kingdom of God, helping us consider how the coming kingdom impacts our daily living, this morning we're going to look at kingdom legacy, the legacy of the kingdom. And, you know, we've been answering the question, how does God's kingdom actually come on earth as it is in heaven? The first week we started with the Lord's Prayer, remembering that the, the first way that God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven is through prayer, teaching us to pray for it, teaching us to expect it. And last week we, we looked at two of Jesus' famous parables on the kingdom, parable of the mustard seed and leaven, and that's how it comes. It comes like a, like a mustard seed, this small thing that, that's supposed to grow into a bush, but actually grows into a tree, and it comes like leaven, this small thing that infects the whole loaf, learning to have proper expectation of God's kingdom that's coming. And this morning, we're going to find that God's kingdom comes through legacy, through the passing on of our faith to our children. So how does God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven by passing our legacy on? And I'm going to frame it like this. I think it's to help us. It's actually by the passing of our story to our children so they don't forget. And I think there's, there's two aspects to this story that we're to pass off to our children, to the generations to come. And uh, the two aspects of the story that I think we see in Psalm 78 are this. That first, the first part of the story that we're passing off is of humanity's failure. And the second part of the story is of God's faithfulness. So the first part of the story that we're telling our children to pass on the kingdom to the next generations is the story of human failure. If you look with me here at the psalm, the psalm begins with this kind of grand you know, entrance, hear this great story. Psalm 78 is one of those psalms that we call the historic psalm. So it's these psalms in the Bible that they kind of tell summaries of different parts of the story of God's people. And that's what Psalm 78 does. And it says, hear this story. We're passing on the things our fathers have passed on to us. We're not going to hold anything back from our children. We're going to tell you about the, the mighty deeds, the works and wonders of God. So that our children hope in him and obey in him. It's like, yes and amen. Humans are storied creatures. We have a story. Stories written in our heart. We're part of this grand story that God has unfolded in, in, in creation that we need to pass on. And then we get to this in verse 8. It says this. Uh, and that they should not be like their fathers. Speaking of our children. We're telling them all this stuff. So that they should not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast whose spirit was not faithful to God. Uh, this is kind of a, a shocking entry into this story as it's un, being un, unfolded. And then the rest of the psalm, which I, I commend you all to, to read later, is actually re, recounting the history of the people of God's failures. And it's, it's kind of a shocking place that the writer of the psalm, Asaph, uh, would, would go based on how the psalm begins. But a large part of the testimony that we're called to pass on to our children as a testimony of our failure. And part of this is saying our, our children don't need us to pretend that we have everything together. Our children need the truth. They need the good, the bad, and the ugly from us, and that's what they get here. You see this in verse 9. Um, 
It says that the Ephraimites armed with the bow turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. So these, these Ephraimites that he's speaking of, they were, they were really bad dudes. It says they forgot the works of God and his miracles, which can in some ways be like, well, that's not that big a deal. We all, we're all a little bit forgetful. I forget things all the time. Um, but, but what happens when you forget God and you forget his works in the world is that you end up being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want. And to give you a picture of just how bad these guys were, another place that these guys show up is in Hosea. Which, if you know anything about the book of Hosea, you probably don't want to get mentioned there. Um, it's a, kind of a brutal book. I'm just going to read you this one verse. Um, these are God's words, uh, speaking about the Ephraimites. It says this in Hosea 4.17. He says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Listen to that language. Ephraim is joined to idols. He's one with the idols. And his command to his people is, leave him alone. Right? Have nothing to do with him. Also speaking of Ephraimites, when their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. Listen to that language. They dearly love shame. And he says a wind, which a wind here is also the word for spirit. So the spirit has wrapped them. It says a wind has wrapped them in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. This is a shocking development here for these people. These aren't people who just accidentally stumbled into evil. It's like, oop, accidentally worshiping idols, my bad. Uh, these, also, um, uh, th- these are people who are united to their evil. They, it says they love their shame. These also aren't just a random group of people who don't know any better. This is one of the people that are of the tribes of Israel. Ephraim was the son of Joseph, right? Joseph, who at the end of Genesis saves the people, bringing them into Egypt, um, the great Joseph. These were people who knew God. These are people who had received his laws. They were not sinning out of ignorance, but they were actively joining themselves to idols, which begs the question, how could this possibly happen? How could this get so bad for them? Well, verse 11 tells us, says they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. They forgot the works of God. They forgot his work in creation. They forgot his wonders, which wonders is a word that means miracles. They forgot the miracles of God. They forgot, they forgot their story. Our story is not one that we just tell once to our children and say, hey, yeah, I told you that thing. Why don't you remember it? Um, but it's the, the, the story is so important. You need to rehearse this story daily. This is one reason why we even have a church calendar we follow that retells the great miracles, the great life of Christ, right? His virgin birth, his death, his resurrection. Because you might think that you remember these things because you've been told it before. But if, if you don't continue to retell this story, what this is telling us is you will forget. Just like these people forgot, you will forget if you do not rehearse the story. Forgetting our story is actually the first step to becoming like the Ephraimites. So remembering and retelling our story is the way forward. And so we remember our story by first, I think we have to remember our failures lest we become like our fathers, lest we repeat the mistakes of the past. If we want to pass on the work of the kingdom, our faith to our children, we can't hide our failures. And I think, you know, from Genesis 3 to today, a big part of our story as a people, whether it's the people in the, the Bible, the history of the church, it's a messy history. And if you try to sugarcoat our story and try to make it sound like, no, everything's, yeah, it's pretty good. 
Our children will never take us seriously and they will not follow in our footsteps. We have to tell our story. And I think generally, I think we get this idea. You know, we, we want our children to be better than us, but, uh, but nobody enjoys talking about your personal failures, do you? It's not a, a fun thing. And even when we do talk about our failures, we tend to like couch it in like, well, you know, we're all, we all sin. You know, I had my, my heyday, but we don't, we kind of keep a little vague, you know, because we're embarrassed about it, because we're shamed by our, by our sin. I, I wasn't perfect, but you know, no one's perfect. So, you know, um, but, the, but what Psalm 78 is telling us, unless we are brutally honest about our life, passing on our story, our children will have no hope when they fail either. I mean, what hope do they have when they read about the failures of even our greatest heroes? You know, one of the beautiful things about Scripture is actually how honest it is about the people within it. Even our heroes, even the best of us, uh, messed up brutally. Just a couple examples. Abraham, pretty good guy. You know the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, right? He's the... You know, Genesis 12, he introduces us to him. He's this great man who had profound faith, was willing to leave his father in his house because God called him. He's like, all right, I'll follow this God. I'm going to go. And he does. Profound faith to the point where he was willing to sacrifice his only son uh, because God told him to, a man of great faith. But also, there was that one time he basically sold his wife for his own freedom because he was afraid. Actually, he did that twice. Not, not great. Don't do that, men, with your wives. Um, and then there was, you know, there's David, King David. He was a man after God's own heart. Pretty great guy, right? Slayer of giants. Remember, Israel was so afraid of, of Goliath. They were all cowering. And here comes little David. You know, he's like, what are you guys afraid of? Do you know who your God is? And he steps up there and slays him and cuts off his head, holds it up. That's not in the children's Bibles, but it's in the Bible Bible. But you've got, you got this great story of David. Uh, but there was that, well, that one time that he stole someone's wife, got her pregnant, and killed her husband. I mean, not, not great. And I think our instinct can be to sugarcoat this part of our story. I think the brutalness and the honesty of Scripture often makes us feel uncomfortable. We don't like that part of our story. And, and, and we often can think we're helping our children from repeating our mistakes by hiding them from them. But the wisdom of Psalm 78 shows us a different picture. Part of our job is being ruthlessly honest about our failures. If we want our children to have hope in God, to remember him, to walk in obedience, we have to be open about the story. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you talk to a five-year-old and tell me, you know, when I was in college, you know, that's not what I'm suggesting. Obviously, age appropriate, time in life. But it does mean that we don't need to sugarcoat the story for our children. They can handle it. Because in this, our children learn that, listen, we're not the heroes of this great story. God is. It is God who keeps covenants and pursues his people. And if we hide our failures, we, I think, run the risk of either uh, one of two things. Either our children will grow up thinking that they're the great hero of the kingdom, or at their first mistake, they're going to think, oh, I'm the odd man out. Everyone else seemed to do great, but I'm the one that's struggling. And this isn't the story of scripture. This isn't the story that will last. They need to know the timeless truth that they will too fail, but they have a God who is stronger than their failures. As if to say, look at Look at what God forgave in this great story. When you read Psalm 78, the amazing part is that God actually still forgave these people and worked wonders among them. 
And, he, and, and when we tell this story to our children, it assumes that, listen, just as God forgave them, so he will forgive you when you struggle. And maybe, just maybe, our children will be quicker to turn to repent than we were. Which leads to kind of the second part of this important story. Uh, it begins remembering our failure, but, but it ends uh, with the story of God's faithfulness, right? The, the only reason you and I can be honest about our failures, the reason that gives us hope to, to, to get into the particulars of them, is because of the strength of God's faithfulness. That he is faithful to love his people despite his failures. And when we believe that, and the more we believe that, the more we're unashamed and unafraid to be honest about our failures in life. So the second part of the story is the story of God's faithfulness. The story of God's faithfulness. If, if God wasn't faithful to his people, then hiding our failure and sin might make sense. But fortunately for us and for our children, the story doesn't end with our failure because as stubborn as humanity is to walk away from God, to ignore him, to forget him, God's faithfulness to us, his people, is more stubborn. There is no more stubborn force in all creation than grace and love of Christ for his people. And Asaph, the writer, begins retelling this story, right? The mighty deeds that, that were once forgotten so we don't forget. So look with me here at verse 12. He says this, In the sight of their fathers... He performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and, and, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly from the deep. This whole part is, just this, is a recounting of the great Exodus story in poetic form. God's mighty works and deeds are on display for his people, reminding them, reminding him reminding his people what his fathers have seen. And you know, God doesn't just say, listen, no, I'm a faithful God. You can trust me. You know, I'm a pretty good guy. But he actually shows it to them. He proves it in his actual work in creation amongst his people. Uh, and there's this reoccurring talk of his works and his actions in, those, in this world, his actions on behalf of his people. And the, the miracles he performs for us are despite our failures. It's, it's after our failures that he continues to work miracles and wonders among his people as if to say, remember me. Stop forgetting me. I'm the God who works for you. Even in your failures, I am pursuing you and working for good on your behalf. You know, this part of God's work in the world comes after Ephraim's sin, not before it. And each section of the psalm actually follows this same pattern, reminding us that God's faithful works for his people. And then you get this reoccurring theme, like in verse 17, it says, and yet they sinned. God did all these wonderful things, and yet they turned against him. Again, in verse 32, in this psalm, it says, despite all this, despite all these wonderful things that God has done for them and all that they have seen, they still sinned. And the emphasis here is that despite humanity's failures, despite their sin, Despite their love for idolatry, despite our love for idolatry, God still pursues and works miracles on behalf of them. It's not because you and I are deserving of it. It's not because we are the keepers of the covenant, but because he keeps his covenants. And without fail, he, he pursues his people, feeding them in the desert, leading them to the promised land, bringing them to the place in which they were to establish God's kingdom. God is the faithful God that despite our failures, despite our chasing after idols, he doesn't stop pursuing his people. He doesn't stop building his kingdom. And we see this further as we look back to the beginning of the psalm. It says in, in verse 4, it says, We will not hide them, speaking of the works of God, from their children, 
But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Because this is what we're not hiding from God. We're not hiding from our children. We're not hiding God's faithfulness. Right? The thing that makes God's work in this world most glorious, the thing that makes it most miraculous, the thing that makes it stand out is that the grace and love that he shows his people is completely undeserved, yet he freely offers it and freely gives it to his people. And as he does that, he takes our collective stories of failure, our deepest and darkest moments of shame, and transforms them into places of glory. You know, we, we look at our stories of failure and think, that was the worst moment of my life. Why would I ever want to rehearse that again and bring it up and tell anybody else? And then Jesus enters that story, and he says, you can tell people that story that brings you the most shame because I've taken the shame away as I died on the cross and your sin was placed on me, your shame was placed on me, your failures in life were placed on me, and I died for them. And I replace that shame with glory. I replace that shame with life. Because you are forgiven, because you are made new, because you are a new creation in Christ, that's why you can share that story. Our our places of failure in our life seem to have the most power over us. They're the things that keep you up at night. Usually you don't get kept up at night thinking about good things. It's, It's your shame, it's your failures. Like, why did I say that? I think that person hates me. Um, You know, those are the things that keep us up at night. And yet Jesus takes those moments of failure and says, no, 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 no. I'm going to rewrite this story. This story of failure is now going to be a story of glory. This story of shame that you hide is now going to be this place that you can walk in openness because Christ has taken all your shame, all your failures on on himself. And he's given you a new story. The faithfulness of Christ is greater than our failures. This is a story that our children need to rehearse and believe. Because this is the children that we have to rehearse and believe. So that, this, so, that, so that the generations to come will follow us. Our greatest work is telling this story. Making sure this story is not forgotten to the coming generations. And as we tell them this grand story, I think it, it trains us in, in a couple of different things. It trains us, we here see in, in, in hope and obedience. You see this in verse 7. It's kind of the reason behind telling our our children and our children's children and so forth is this, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. This is why we're doing this, right? And to to set your hope in God says, I'm not going to put my hope and I'm not going to trust in idols, but I'm going to look to God for my hope, for my joy. I'm going to look to God for my place in this world. So I know how to play my small part to pass it off to our children. Right, this is what this verse before, you know, it's, it's this generational view for us. Right, the next generation, children yet unborn, teaching their children this story so that we hope in the God who is faithful. So our hope is in our God whose grace is stubborn and, and that we put our trust in him and not in our idols. And I think the way we show our hope is in, in the, the way we, we show that our hope is actually in God is in by walking in obedience to his work. Right? Hope is not just this intellectual pursuit for us. We're like, yeah, I, I have good hope, and I feel I have hope. But it's actually something that's lived out in our lives uh, in our obedience to God, trusting that, that God is the one who knows the way to the good life, and so we obey him. He said, I'm going to look to God for my meaning, not the world. I'm going to trust his word even when it doesn't make sense to me. We're going to trust in his laws, that they're good, beautiful, and true, even when they don't always feel that way for us in the given moment. 
So the story of God ends up reorienting all of our life, giving us hope, a life of obedience to him, a life of remembering him. This is a story of God's faithfulness. So what does this actually look like for us to do this, to pass this faith on to the next generation? Well, I think, um, especially for parents in the room, this is going to require a few th- things from here. But even if you're here with, you're without children, you're not exempt from this. Uh, because as you are part of the body of Christ, you have spiritual children he- here as well that you're responsible to passing on this faith to. And I think it's going to require at least two things. Them it's called time and presence. It's going to require our time and our presence. This is where I'm going to venture into potentially sensitive territory. You're warned ahead of time. This is where I would suggest that if you are constantly, um, and not just seasonally, but annually working crazy long hours, 80 plus work weeks, and you spend virtually no time with your family or your children, you will have a very hard time passing this story to your kids. Because no school, no other person, not even the, the church will have the same impact on your children as you will. Uh, the story you tell in your home is the story your children will most likely believe in this world. That, which requires time. It requires presence with your children. Right? The, the world will, will try to tell you that your work is who you are. It's the thing that makes you valuable. It's the most important thing you ever do. But I think Psalm 78 teaches that that is not true. The most important thing you can do in your life is passing on this great story of the kingdom to your children. And as, you're, and as, a, as, a, as a church, our, one of our primary jobs is actually helping you do that work. That we're telling a consistent, cohesive story. But even, not even the church can replace you in this. We work together in this. But we can't replace you. you know, we even as a, as, a, as a church started school because we believe in this so much that all education is discipleship and training and passing off our faith to the next generation, which is a key part of it. But, but even, even so, uh, it, it still cannot overwrite the story that's being told at home. Your children need your time. They need your presence. They need meals around the table. They need a sharing of life of the highs and lows, sharing the great stories of Scripture. I, I will say this is probably the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. Um, I struggle to do this regularly with our own family. It's, it's easy to run from thing to thing and to never slow down, especially when, when our world rewards you for never slowing down. It looks at you like you're crazy when you slow down. But being trained in the kingdom means slowing down because God's kingdom comes generationally. Like it's, not one, it's not a project that's, that's finished in the summertime. It's a project that you will never see completed in your life. But it is so important that you can't help but pass it on to your children that they can play their part. You know, I think another aspect of this that I've alluded to that joins with us is even just a gathering and worshiping together on a Sunday. Part of having a unified story is remembering the gospel together as a community each week and remembering, you know, your family is not alone. This is not a solo project. You actually can accomplish this alone just in your own home, as important as it is. It's a group effort. And even what happens here every week is an extension of the home where we gather our collective stories, our collective highs and lows. We sing them to the Lord. We experience grace and mercy. We gather around a family table every week remembering the great works of Christ. 
I mean, a whole liturgy the whole st- that we have in our, in our bulletin is remembering the great story of Scripture from creation, fall, redemption, consummation. We're re- remembering and retelling that story every week that we never forget the faithfulness of God and our need for Him to be faithful because we are a people who struggle with sin. We need forgiveness. And He is mighty to save us. And we, we rehearse this so we don't forget and, and turn to idols, but we walk in obedience and hope in God. And we take that obedience and that hope that we have when we go and we live in this world that, that our neighbors might in turn learn this deep story. I mean, this is even why we have capital campaigns to restore buildings, because we aren't just thinking about our own children. But we're, the question we're asking is, how do I actually pass my faith on to our children's children that those will come long after I die? And it's by investing in things that will last. Imagine, imagine if our great-great-grandchildren actually worshipped in this room. How might that change how you invest your life? The most important thing you can do is pass your faith to your children from generation to generation. And that they would pass their story of faith to the next and so off. And this doesn't happen by accident. But it happens as we ourselves are immersed in this great story of the gospel, remembering the great love of Christ, that while we were enemies of his, he died for us. And as we do this, we train our children to remember him and live out the gospel story in their lives as they tell their children and their children until the whole earth is filled with God's glory. This is the way this kingdom is coming on earth and is expanding and filling the earth is generationally. As one generation passes on to the next and the next and the next until the whole earth is filled with this story. May we be a people who remember this great story and who don't hesitate to to tell it to the next generation. May our church be a launching pad for the generations to follow Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Great God in heaven, we give you thanks for your great mercy, for your great love that you have chosen us, that you have grafted us into your family. I pray that we would rejoice in that great truth. And as we rejoice, that we would not let that truth die with us, but that we would pass it faithfully on to our children, that they might pass it on to theirs. Father, may we be faithful with this work that you've given us. May you give us great grace and mercy when we struggle And then even in that, that we can be honest with our struggles, remembering that you're the God who forgives. Do this work in us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.